The gulf that separated me from Christ my Lord Was so vast the crossing I could never fold From where I was to His demand it seemed so far I cried, dear Lord, I cannot come to where you are. He came to me. He came to me. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. He came to me when I was bound in chains of sin. He came to me when I possessed no hope within. He picked me up and drew me gently to his side. Where today in his sweet love I now abide. He came. That's why he died on Calvary. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I could not come where he was, he came to me.
forever changed. For hope was born when Jesus rose that day. And still his wounded hands reveal the love he has. For every fallen soul he came to save. And he will come again and one by one will rise to praise his holy Take your Bibles, turn over to the book of Matthew, chapter 28, chapter 28, again, a familiar and traditional passage that we use during this time of year. I read about a five-year-old Brian who had a very pivotal role uh, in the Easter program at church. He was uh, to, refer, to, to recite this particular verse, and uh, the verse was, he is not here, he is risen and, uh, of course, that's in Luke chapter 24, verse 6. And, unfortunately, he couldn't remember what to say. He just could not get it through his head, and it just kept slipping out of his mind. And the director had quietly reminded him of his line. He then confidently grabbed the microphone, and he triumphantly shouted, He is not here! He is in prison! <laughs> uh, well, we're glad that he's no longer in prison. He rose again, Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Matthew 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, whom was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. 
Come see the place where the Lord lay. Of course, we know that biblically this passage identifies the reason we've gathered today. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And uh, that passage focuses on that. Now, most Americans still believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You say, I can hardly believe it. Well, according to the 2020 State of of Theology study, LifeWay Research found that 66% of Americans believe the biblical accounts of the physical resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. It's hard to believe, isn't it? 66% say, we believe it's accurate. Now, of course, there are 5%, or or should I say 20%, or uh, 1 in 5 that don't believe the accounts are true, while 14% say that, well... Uh, you know, we're not sure. We're just not sure yet. So again, there's still hope. There's still those out there that believe that, just like you and I, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And maybe you're here today, and you're one of those that are saying, well, I'm not sure. Well, today I want to try to address that a little bit. Now, it's important to remember that the believer's hope is not in the death of Christ, but in his resurrection. See, we celebrate his resurrection and understand that without it, his death would be no different or no greater than any other death. His resurrection separates him from all other self-professing saviors. He alone rose from the dead, and therefore, he alone can save. One of Buddha's finger bones was sent as a gift to the emperor of China during the Tang Dynasty in 618 to 907 B.C., It had been forgotten about for centuries until it was rediscovered in 1987. The finding was a sensation to Buddhists everywhere. And the bones are now visited by multiple Buddhists around the world. In recent years, China has even used the finger of Buddha to try to patch up strained relationships with Hong Kong and with Taiwan. So they found the finger of Buddha. And it's big news. And it offers tremendous hope to Buddhists everywhere. But if someone claimed to find a finger that belonged to Jesus Christ, there would not be a Christian who would believe him because our faith is founded on the fact that there is no finger to find. Christ rose from the dead. Boy, if they could have found the body of Jesus... The Christian faith would have no leg to stand on. Why do you suppose they placed a guard at the tomb when they did? Because they didn't want the disciples to steal the body and somehow make Jesus appear to be someone or something that he was not in their mind. By the way, the disciples didn't steal the body, and yet the guards couldn't keep him in the tomb. So as believers, we understand the significance of the cross. But the cross isn't the end all, is it? No, the cross signifies a death or an end of all things, while the resurrection signifies life and a new beginning. On one occasion, Michelangelo, the great artist, he became frustrated and even upset with his fellow artists. He said to them, he said, why do you keep filling gallery after gallery with endless pictures on the one theme of Christ in weakness, Christ on the cross, and most of all, Christ hanging dead? Why do you concentrate on the passing episode as if it were the last work, as if the curtain dropped on him with disaster and defeat? 
That dreadful scene lasted a few hours. But to the unending eternity, Christ is alive. The stone has been rolled away, and He rules and reigns and triumphs. He lives today. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that concept. And yet, when we consider Christ and His life, is it any wonder that He rose from the dead? There's never been anyone like Him, nor will there ever be. If someone doubts the reality of the resurrection, I'm here to tell you that it is a reasonable supposition. And this morning, I want to consider this reasonable supposition. And so let us have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time that we will now have together in your word. Thank you for the beautiful specials today. Thank you for the choir and, Lord, just for the the, the offertory. And, Lord, for every aspect of our service so far, we just ask now that all of it would be to your glory. And, Lord, if there be those that have yet to receive and accept your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior, that they would do so before they leave today. And for us as believers, may we once again celebrate your resurrection and do so most of all by being obedient to you, proving that we appreciate it so much. We love you, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So is it any wonder that he rose from the dead when you consider his supernatural birth? Do you know that his birth was prophesied? We're talking about a supernatural birth. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The truth is, is that over 700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah knew that Jesus Christ would come and Jesus Christ being Emmanuel, God with us, would not be born of a normal situation. He would be a supernatural birth a supernaturally born young man, that he would not have an earthly father, but a heavenly father and an earthly mother. It was prophesied. It was proclaimed. We see in the days of Mary and Joseph, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. It was also proclaimed to Joseph, Remember, he's struggling now because he's going to learn that Mary is pregnant. How in the world did that happen? She's supposed to be my bride. She's supposed to be my wife. And God makes sure he understands there's something very unusual and different here. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, he says, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The fact is he had no relationship with his wife until after the birth of Jesus Christ. There was no earthly father. It was a heavenly father. It was prophesied, it was proclaimed, and it did indeed come to pass. In Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, the Bible says, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I don't know about you, but is it really any wonder that he rose from the dead when you consider his supernatural birth? Not only that, but is it any wonder that he rose from the dead when you consider his sinless life? 
Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, if you have your Bible today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Notice what the Bible says here. Again, pointing to the sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, who did no sin. Look at it there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who did no sin, talking specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ. A little boy, he walked into the kitchen and he told his mother that he discovered he was six feet tall. When she asked how, how in the world he determined that or come to that conclusion, he told her that he used his shoe to measure and uh, he was six shoes tall. Well, kind of with a loving smile, you know, she told him that his shoe wasn't really a foot long. He insisted, but mom, it's got to be because my foot's in it. (laughs) You know, a lot of people believe they're pretty good because they're using a faulty standard. But no matter the standard, Jesus Christ always comes out perfect. Man, I mean, we try to raise up standards in our own life. Well, I'm not as bad as that person, and at least I'm not uh, like him or her. And man, I can tell you, I may not be perfect, but, but I don't do that. And we have all kinds of standards, and we think somehow that one day God will weigh out our lives on a scale, and if our good outweighs our bad, we'll make it. I'm sorry to say that's not the case. In a sense, I'm glad that's not the case. Because my good would not outweigh my bad. Because when I look deep within my heart, I know there's nothing good in me. Oh, it's one thing to act nice on the outside. It's another thing to be right on the inside. And God's standard far surpasses this exterior. He goes on to the interior and looks deep into the recesses of your heart and mind. And He'll judge you from that, not just what you do with these. And may I say today that when God is judging, it will be perfection. It will be the word of God by which he judges you and judges me. And can I tell you, none of us measures up to that standard. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we read, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Hold on, it doesn't stop there. Yet without sin. Man, he knows what we go through, and he understands our weakness, and he knows in his humanity that we are faced with so many trials and so many situations and so many temptations, and yet he came out on top. He sinned not. In 1 John 3, 5, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin What a mockery it would have been for Jesus Christ to be a sinner like you and I and to claim somehow that he could take away our sin. What hypocrisy would that be? But he never sinned, and as a result, when he hung on Calvary, he didn't deserve to die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. May I say that the reason why you'll die and the reason why I'll die one day is because of the sin that I've inherited from Adam. 
But may I say that Jesus had no earthly father, therefore he has not the inner sin or the inherent sin of Adam. And as a result, he was able to live a life unscathed by sin. Although he was tempted in this flesh, he never succumbed to the temptation. He was victorious and he never sinned. And therefore he never should have died on Calvary because the wages of sin is death. So why did he die? To pay for your sin and to pay for mine. He took our place on Calvary. Is it any wonder that he rose from the dead when you consider his supernatural birth? When you consider his sinless life? Is it any wonder he rose from the dead when you consider his powerful message? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, the Bible says, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I read about a man who lived a number of years ago. I mean, he lived before you walked into a room necessarily and flipped the lights on. I mean, he lived a long time ago. He lived back when some of you were alive. (laughs) Not me, I'm young. As you can see, well, as you can see. Anyway, this particular man, he had rigged up a massive battery system to operate an electric light in his room. It was some light in his room. So he created this massive battery system. Well, it wasn't long before the light flickered and faded. He called one of his friends to come over and take a look at it. And after looking it over, he told him that his system would never again run a light. But it might run a call bell, he said. See, it wasn't strong enough to make a light, but it could make a noise. See, during the life of Jesus Christ, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees made a lot of noise. But they didn't have the power needed to make light. When Jesus spoke, it wasn't just noise, my friend. Oh no, it was the light, and it was infused with great power. He was the light of the world, and his message brought eternal hope. John 7, 46 says, the officers answered, no man spake like this man. I've heard some great preachers in my day. Dr. Lee Robertson, Tom Malone, Jack Hiles, Curtis Hudson, Roy Thompson, Bruce Cummins, Raymond Barber, Tom Wallace, and so many others. But even so, may I say, no man spake like this man. His words formed the heavens, molded the mountains, salted the sea, dried the deserts, and shaped the sands of time. No man spake like this man. No man. Luke 4.32 says, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. I mean, is it any wonder that he rose from the dead when you consider his supernatural birth, his sinless life, his powerful message? What about his miraculous ministry? His miraculous ministry. A young boy traveled by airplane to visit his grandparents, and he sat beside a man who happened to be a seminary professor. 
The boy was reading a Sunday school take-home paper, you know, things that you get in Sunday school for the sake of trying to reinforce the truths of the Word of God. And the professor thought he'd have some fun with the little fella, and he said, young man, if you could tell me something God can do, I'll give you a big shiny apple. The boy thought for a moment, then he said, mister, if you could tell me something God can't do, I'll give you a whole barrel of apples. May I say there's nothing impossible with God? Jesus is God, and His earthly ministry was simply miraculous. We think of the healings. Over in the book of Luke, chapter 4, verse 40, Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick, uh, that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto Him, and He laid hands, His hands on every one of them and healed them. I, I love that. He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. In Matthew eleven three through 5, it says, He said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Of course, John is now in prison, and he's concerned about the Lord. He's been beaten down. He's been made very discouraged and depressed. And even John, who baptized Jesus, is now asking himself and questioning his own conclusions. Is this indeed the Messiah? Is this indeed the Christ? And Jesus says, Go and show John again those things which ye, have, uh, which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Man, you go tell John what's going on. You let him hear about the miracles that are being done through the power of God in me and my life. I'm the Messiah. I am Emmanuel. God with you. Not only that, but as we mentioned, the dead were raised. We think of the widow's son in Luke chapter 7, Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8. We think of Lazarus in John chapter 11, each and every one supposedly dead, and indeed were dead, but not when Jesus comes around, because he is life. And then the elements of obedience. Even the elements obeyed him. The wind and the waves were so strong that even seasoned fishermen like Peter, James, and John were fearful for their very lives. They go down into the ship and they wake Jesus. Oh, Jesus, save us. Oh, Jesus, spare our lives. How can you rest here and relax when our lives are in jeopardy? And Jesus, oh boy. He comes up to his feet and he stands, rises, and he rebukes the wind and the waves. Peace, be still. And a calm settled over that lake. And a peace was restored. Can I tell you that Jesus alone can bring a peace in your life that will calm the storms? In Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? I'll tell you what manner of man he is. It's the God-man! Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. He walked on the water. He turned the water into wine. He shriveled up the fig tree. The Lord spoke the universe into existence. So why are we so surprised when his creation obeys him? Is it any wonder that he rose from the dead when you consider his supernatural birth, his sinless life, his powerful message, his miraculous ministry? Is it really that hard to believe that he rose from the dead? As we close, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 15, would you please? Mark chapter 15. 
Now, the conclusion's about four pages. No, I'm teasing. It's not. <laughs> I heard one preacher preach, and man, I mean to tell you, every time I heard him preach, he closed at least six times. I got thinking, dude, either you are lying to me or you don't even know what you're saying. And I chose to believe the latter. Although I think I might have been right the first, no. But anyway. So I'm not telling you we're closing 10 times, but it will take a moment, but it won't be that long. As we close again, turn to Mark 15, 37 through 38. Now Solomon's temple was 30 cubits high. That's about well, I don't know, 45 feet tall. Now again, we learned that in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 2, but Herod had increased the height to 40 cubits. And that's according to the writings of Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian. That means then that the veil of the temple would have been probably around 45 to 60 feet tall. Remember, you had the outer court, you had the, 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 the holy a holy place, and you had the Holy of Holies. Between the holy place and the Holy of Holies was a veil. According to Jewish tradition, and again, we don't have a biblical standard for this, but according to the tradition, this particular um, veil was about four inches thick. So we're looking at something that's probably 45 to 60 feet tall, four inches thick. The book of Exodus teaches us that that thick veil was fashioned of blue, purple, and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Very secure, very solid piece of, of almost, I guess, would be so thick and hard probably at that point, almost like a leather. Now we read in Mark chapter 15 a very interesting and amazing thing happening. Again, in chapter 15, verse 37, the Bible says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. So our picture is that he is on Calvary and on the cross now. He's suffering and he's bleeding and his body's been broken. And now he's preparing to take his final breath. And the Bible says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. He died. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. It literally was rent or torn in half. Now that was not the work of a man, but of God. See, that veil separated the people from the presence of God who dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And the Israelites were only permitted to enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the day of Pentecost. Excuse me, on the day of Atonement. And on that day, one priest was allowed in to offer the sacrifice. One priest on one day to cover the sin of the nation for a year. This was prior to Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The tearing of the veil at that very moment of Jesus' death symbolized that his sacrifice, the shedding of his own precious blood, was sufficient atonement for sins. It signified that now the way into the Holy of Holies or the way into God's presence was for all people. It was accessible to anyone and everyone, both Jew and Gentile. And not, not, no one would be eliminated, but all could come to God through Jesus Christ. They don't have to go through a physical veil anymore. The veil has been rent. The veil has been cut in half. The veil has been ripped apart. We now have full access to God through Jesus Christ. 
What an amazing, amazing turn of events. And if the tearing of that enormous veil wasn't enough proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be, can I say, after three days and three nights, up from the grave he arose. On February the 27th, 1991, during the Desert Storm War, a woman by the name of Ruth Dillow received the worst phone call of her life. She was informed that her son, Clayton, private first class, had stepped on a landmine and was dead. Obviously, for the next three days, she grieved and no one could comfort her. On the third day after receiving that terrible news, the phone rang. On the other end of the phone, there was a voice that said, Mom, it's me. I'm alive. Mom, Mom, you there? It's me. I'm alive. At first, she thought it was a cruel joke. But as the conversation continued, she realized it was really her son. Later, she told people that she laughed, she cried, she rejoiced because what seemed to be a hopeless situation turned out to be the greatest day of her life. That's what news from a graveyard can do for you when your faith is in Jesus Christ. You realize that? See, Jesus died on the cross to pay the awful price of sin. Listen, those days which immediately followed his death were dark and dismal days for sure for the disciples. But after three days and three nights, up from the grave he arose. I don't know today whether or not you've truly taken advantage of the resurrection of Christ. I'm not sure whether you personally can point to a day, a time, a place when you received and accepted him into your life as your Savior. But my friend, I want you to know you could and can if you choose. A little boy and his father were driving down a country road on a beautiful spring afternoon. Suddenly, out of nowhere, this bumblebee flew into the car window. I don't know if it was one of those big ones, because you can hardly catch those, but this one wasn't really that big. It was just one of the, a bee, you know, that could sting you. Well, the little boy, he was deathly allergic to bee stings, and he, he was petrified. He was scared to death. His father quickly reached out, and he grabbed the bee, kind of caught him in air, held him in his hand for a moment, then he released the bee. As soon as he let it go, his son became frantic all over again. The bee was buzzing around the little boy. And this time the father sensed his son's terror. He looked back and he stuck his hand back there. This time he kind of pointed to a spot on his hand. And there stuck in his hand was the stinger of the bee. You see? You see this? He asked his son. You don't need to be afraid anymore. I've taken the sting for you. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and 56, the Bible says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Can I tell you that Jesus Christ on Calvary paid the sting of sin? He bought and purchased you with his precious blood, and then he rose again the third day to prove that he had all authority to do so. See, only Jesus can take the sting out of death. Only his sacrifice and resurrection can free you from the chains of sin that bind you. A risen Savior is who you need. Trust Christ today if you haven't already. He's the answer. He's still the answer. 
Maybe you know Christ as your Savior. Can I say that he is worthy of our best? We read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The British minister, W.E. Sangster, began to lose his voice and mobility in the mid-1950s. He, he had a disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy. He recognized the end was near, so he threw himself into his writing and praying. In the midst of his suffering, he pleaded, Let me stay in the struggle, Lord. I don't mind if I can no longer be a general, but give me just a regiment to lead. Sangster's voice eventually failed completely, and his legs became totally useless. On Easter morning, just a few weeks before his death, he, he took a pen and he kind of did his best to write his daughter a letter, and in it he said, it is terrible to walk up, wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, he is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Can I ask you, did you wake up this morning wanting to shout? As you heard the music playing, as you heard the message given, is there something inside burning that says, Praise God, He's not dead, but He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He's risen from the dead. Is it any wonder that He rose from the dead? His supernatural birth, his sinless life, his powerful message, his miraculous ministry. If you're lost today without Christ, then that's how the Bible portrays you, lost. Lost in the darkness of sin. Trying to find your way and navigate through this life without any light to guide you. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light of life. Admit your guilt before a holy God. Call out to Him and beg Him to forgive you of your sin and to come into your life trusting only Him and what He did for you on Calvary is payment for your sin. And the light of the world will enter into your life. You'll be able to see where you're headed now and have the hope that only a believer can have in Christ. And if you're a child of God today, Will you give him your all? He's worthy of our best. Will you find the shout again if you've lost it? And if you still have it, will you share it with a world in need? Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time we have together. We ask, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd work in our lives. And again, we thank you, Father, for just the privilege of being part of your family, if indeed we are. Lord, there may be those here today that are without Jesus Christ that don't know for sure if they died, they'd go to heaven. Lord, if we're a child of God, we need to give you our best. We need to, Father, be able to shout. But on the other hand, Lord, maybe there are those that are without you that don't know for sure heaven's their home. Father, in just a moment, we're going to ask them and give them the opportunity to come forward and see somebody that has a Bible and 
take and show them how they can know for sure heaven's their home. See your promises, not a Baptist way, not a Methodist way, not a religious way at all, but a Bible way to receive and accept Christ and ultimately have heaven as their home. Father, help them. Today, you're seated out there with our head bowed and eyes closed. If you die today, are you 100% sure where you'd spend eternity? Do you know for sure heaven's your home? You can know that today. The Bible says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it because of his precious promises. He said he would come, and he came. He said he would die and rise again, and he did. And he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you'll call on him, he'll save you too. We're going to close in a word of prayer in just a moment. We're going to keep our eyes closed and our heads bowed. But as soon as you, I say amen, won't you come? Won't you come? And let Christ change your life. Father, we ask, Lord, for your leadership now. Bless the believer. Be with that person that's without Christ as well. And may they, Father, choose to receive and accept you even now that you may pay for their sin because you already paid the price. Now they have to apply the payment. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed as the music plays. You come.